The following program is for adult audiences only. Stephen Lancaster's Ghost Story is proudly sponsored by the Shadow Initiative Paranormal Talk Podcast. What you are about to hear is a true case file from paranormal investigator Stephen Lancaster. January 14th, 2007. In my many years of paranormal research, it has been a rarity to cross paths with anything violent in nature. Depending on how you look at it, I am either lucky or unlucky to have minimal experiences with the darker side of the paranormal realm. When I was approached with a case that bordered on dangerous, I welcomed it with open arms for the pure experience and opportune research of it. The description of poltergeist activity is commonly known to most people. For those who were uneducated on the subject, the movie industry changed all of that with a series of popular special effect laden films that started surfacing in the early 1980s. Documented poltergeist activity dates back to the late 1600s. Over the years, there have been very few well documented cases by physicists and paranormal investigators. The most commonly reported activity in poltergeist phenomena are random objects moving or floating through the air, light bulbs exploding, objects glowing white, objects bending or burning, televisions powering on and off, and unexplainable cracking and hammering sounds. I have researched alleged poltergeist activity in the past. In most cases, I was able to dismiss the minimal occurrences through scientific means and rational deduction. The clients I dealt with never really had an extreme case that was a nuisance or repeat offender. In most cases, there were one or two unexplainable occurrences that sent them running in the direction of the poltergeist label. Sometimes a simple event can cause the most dramatic effect. Something as simple as a loose floorboard, if stepped on just right, could send a vibration across a wooden floor ending in a piece of furniture lightly shaking just enough to cause an object to fall from it. This was the case with one of my previous clients. In her case, she was relieved to know that nothing paranormal was occurring in her home. Other cases produce similar results. I call it the ripple effect. One thing can easily lead to another, and in most cases, a person misinterprets what they had just experienced. Paranormal researchers have the luxury of looking for these clues after the fact. When clients experience something, they are simply going through their day-to-day -day routine and find themselves caught off guard by something that does not normally happen. There's no time for rational thought in those situations because they were not looking for something. But when entering a client's home, I already know the symptoms. I simply need to find the cure. There was a case, however, that did produce rather shocking evidence in favor of poltergeist activity. Although I have not completely concluded my research into this case, the fieldwork so far has been productive and even unsettling. I was approached by a family in Long, South Carolina who allegedly were experiencing violent occurrences within their home. 
Their claims ranged from inanimate objects flying at them to electronic devices actually exploding. They reported to me that this activity occurred four to five times a week at different times of the day. The activity was unpredictable but always seemed to be harmful in nature. The clients had no clue as to why this activity was occurring and they were unaware of any possible motive that may be history based. The reported poltergeist activity did not happen throughout their entire house. The activity was secluded to their master bedroom and bathroom. Not one time did this family experience anything outside of those two rooms. I decided to accept the case and scheduled a night to conduct research in their home. Since the activity was sporadic, I planned to start in the afternoon and continue on throughout the night. I arrived at the private residence at 3 in the afternoon. After a quick tour of the house, the owners left and I started my research. They left me with a cell phone number to contact them in just in case there is an emergency. The plan was for them to meet me back at the house at the crack of dawn the following day. Like I normally do, I did a full sweep of the home, logging baseline data from my various pieces of equipment. I also stationed multiple surveillance cameras in the master bedroom and bathroom to document the entire investigation. After about an hour of logging data and setting up, I decided to start focusing on the two rooms said to contain this violent activity. I started with the bathroom off of the master bedroom. After two hours of uneventfully sitting and waiting, I relocated to the master bedroom. The master bedroom was home to half of a dozen porcelain dolls that added their own creep factor to the room. They just stared at me, completely lifeless, yet I felt like something was inside looking out. Needless to say, I wasn't really a big fan of them. It was about 6 in the evening at this point and I had yet to experience anything out of the ordinary. Staking out between two rooms can become tedious when nothing is occurring. At 7 in the evening I decided to walk around the house as if I were living there. I thought maybe that was why I was not experiencing anything. The house was quiet and lifeless. I walked through the house turning lights on and purposely creating noise to make my presence known. 9 in the evening rolled around and I had yet to document anything to validate or disprove the client's claims. I once again returned to the master bedroom in hopes of stirring up some activity. I sat at the bottom of the bed in silence for quite some time. I eventually placed a pair of custom made goggles for paranormal research to see if anything was occurring in the 720 nanometer light spectrum. I designed these goggles so I could physically see the spectrum that infrared uses to see in total darkness. I witnessed nothing out of the ordinary while wearing the goggles. Moments later, a sliding sound came from the dresser against the wall. This of course directed my attention to those creepy dolls who were sitting on the dresser. I didn't see anything move but it did sound like something slid across the top of it. I glanced down at the electromagnetic field tester and noted the field was 10 points higher than it was when I conducted my initial sweep. Initially following that, I heard what can only be described as a thick scratching sound coming down the wall to the right of me. Again I could not see anything but the sound was loud and clear. I stood up trying to recreate the sound and was eventually successful. I used my pointer finger and dragged it along the wall. That sound was close. It wasn't exact. It wasn't exactly what I heard, but it was very, very similar. What I heard had more depth to it, so I dragged all five fingers across the wall. This created the sound almost perfectly. 
I believed something had scratched the wall, only I could not see what that something was. I was now standing directly in front of the dresser. There was a tall lamp to the left of me. Still monitoring the electromagnetic field tester, I noticed it was registering five points higher than earlier. The tester was now sitting at a solid point sixteen on the Tesla scale. As I moved the tester closer to the wall where I heard the scratching sound, the number gradually increased. I almost had the meter right where the lamp was when the light mysteriously turned on right in front of me. At that moment, the electromagnetic field tester was registering a 107 in Tesla mode. This was incredible. It was now close to 10 in the evening and I was happy that the activity was starting to present itself. So far, I had heard two unexplainable and defining sounds and a lamp had turned on, seemingly by itself. The electromagnetic fields in that room were extremely high and very dangerous to be exposed to for a long period of time. I had to unplug the lamp just to get it to turn off. Turning the normal switch did not even phase it. I plugged the lamp back in and it worked fine. When I switched it on and off, it was not a faulty lamp. I stood there in silence, just for a few moments, and then I noticed the closet door was vibrating every so often, very softly and very lightly. It was vibrating enough to cause the doorknob to start making a little rattling sound. I continued to stand there to watch the door. There was not a central air vent nearby to be causing enough air movement to even move that door. I had yet to explore the closet, so I could not say at this time that there was a reason for the door moving on the other side. The door suddenly stopped vibrating and I could hear movement coming from inside the closet. I opened the closet door and looked for a central air vent. There were none to be found. I could still hear something moving towards the back of the closet. I shined my flashlight towards the back and saw a leather jacket swinging on the rack. One thing the clients forgot to tell me was that they witnessed a woman's purse floating in mid-air in the closet at one point. After the investigation, when I reported my findings, they finally remembered to tell me that. I stood still watching this leather jacket sway back and forth. I slowly approached the jacket with my electromagnetic field tester. It is extremely rare to see this tester actually add an additional decimal point to the read. Underneath this jacket, the electromagnetic field was so high that the meter registered two decimal points. I had only seen this a few times throughout the years. A field that high was uncanny for a private residence. There were no major power lines outside of the home or nearby radio towers to justify such a high read. From here I decided to venture up to the attic to explore the possibility of faulty electrical work being the cause. The attic was airtight. The electrical work appeared to be up to par. In fact, the highest number I registered on the electromagnetic field tester up in the attic was a .04. I left the attic to return to the master bedroom. As I approached the room, I could hear a loud static sound coming from inside. Another thing to note was the fact that I had left the door open, yet when I returned, it was closed. I cautiously opened the door to discover an alarm clock on a nightstand had been turned on. The needle on the tuner was stuck in between two clear channels transmitting nothing but white noise and random radio broadcasts cutting in and out. Alarm clocks are infamous for giving off high electromagnetic fields, so I didn't look too much into the point .40 this device was registering. Just like the lamp, the radio had not physically been turned on. The switch was still in the off position, 
So like the lamp, I unplugged it to get it to stop, and the room was quiet once more. Now midnight, I stood at the side of the bed waiting for the next wave of activity to occur. I had yet to witness the reported flying objects. Everything else the clients mentioned I had experienced so far. I could not come to a rational explanation as to how these occurrences were happening. The next thing that happened still sends shivers down my spine. Up until this point, I had never been attacked in any way by an entity during my research. I have been threatened verbally, but never physically attacked. I was still standing beside the bed when I heard something moving either in or around the dresser with the porcelain dolls. Once again, I found myself staring at these hideous things. I started walking towards the dresser very slowly. The closer I got, the more I started to think that maybe a mouse was behind the dresser or even in one of the drawers. That could have explained the sounds I heard earlier. I stopped about three feet from the dresser. The sound had stopped as well. The room was completely silent. I stood there listening and listening, yet all I could hear was the quietness of the room. Then, without warning, a spool of thread flew from the top of the dresser and hit me directly in my right eye. After the spool hit, instead of bouncing backwards upon impact, it went around me and fell to the ground. Now, I am no physicist, but I am well aware of the common laws of gravity and impact. That spool of thread should have hit me and either fallen to the ground in front of me or bounced off of me back in the direction from which it came. The object did no such thing. This spool of thread struck me and then literally turned around me before hitting the floor. I turned around and spotted the spool of thread on the floor. I bent over to pick it up and was startled by the alarm clock turning back on to pure white noise again. I grabbed the alarm clock remembering I had unplugged it previously. I noted that the plug was still out of the socket. The alarm clock was somehow functioning without conventional power, and before you even say it, yes, there were no batteries. I threw the alarm clock on the bed, and it stopped. I ran over to one of the stationary surveillance cameras I had set up, and I put my face close to the lens and pointed out my right eye. The video clearly documented my right eye showing signs of having been struck. My right eye was puffy and red, and when compared to the other, the difference was undeniable. I was also pleased that this same surveillance camera captured the attack on me. After noting the incident on the video camera, I had returned to the spot beside the bed where the incident had taken place. I scoured the entire area in search of the object that had hit me moments earlier. I was unable to locate it. Immediately after the incident, I had turned around and seen the spool of thread lying on the floor. At some point between me walking over to the camera and documenting my eye and me coming back, the spool had moved again. The damage to my eye put me in a position I did not like to be put in. I had to end the investigation prematurely. I have a rule in paranormal research, and that rule starts with the researchers and investigators themselves. If they are not physically and mentally capable of conducting research to the best of their ability, they are a hindrance to the productivity of the case. I had been hurt. The vision in my right eye was blurred and was hindering my line of sight. I can no longer rely on myself to report accurately what I might see. I called the clients and informed them that I would be departing earlier than expected. I advised them to stay wherever they were for the evening just to be safe. I could tell they were concerned yet at the same time excited that I was able to witness what they had been experiencing. I packed up all of my gear and left the house at one in the morning. 
My eye was fine the next day, but remained a little tender to the touch for a few days afterward. This investigation was one of my most recent ones at the time, so I have yet to further explore the strange occurrences in this house. What I witnessed and experienced certainly falls within the realm of poltergeist activity. This early on into the research, I cannot really say that it is in fact a poltergeist. There definitely is something completely out of the ordinary happening in my client's house. I documented nearly everything they had warned me about and then some. Upon further research, I will be able to hopefully pin down rational causes for this activity. Many people are unaware there are scientific explanations for poltergeist phenomena. I cannot completely rule that out at this point. The documented effects of electromagnetism are identical to what has been regarded as poltergeist or paranormal activity. Electromagnetism in the proper setting can make inanimate objects move, bend steel, create light anomalies, and even cause fires. Knowing this, my future research into this private residence will focus on the effects of electromagnetism and poltergeist activity. My clients may very well be experiencing authentic paranormal occurrences, but until I can rule out the possibility of electromagnetism playing a role, I cannot conclude on this case. Either way, my clients are in a potentially dangerous situation. As a paranormal researcher, I must reach out to every possible alternative that does not include the presence of a ghost. I base much of my personal work on the study of electromagnetic fields and their effects on everyday life. Electromagnetics are to the paranormal field what gravity is to the Earth. Entities or spirits may not be using electromagnetism voluntarily. They may not be using it at all. This may be something they are drawn to or maybe they act as a magnet themselves. In this case, the cause may or may not be paranormal. Years from now, I believe that what most consider being paranormal will be considered part of everyday life, courtesy of ongoing scientific research. Until then, I will have to wonder what truly is going on in that house. I have seen some shit. I'm going to tell you all about it. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. Please follow us on Facebook and subscribe via iTunes. Join Stephen on Facebook at facebook.com slash welcome to the initiative. That's facebook.com slash welcome to the initiative.